0: Everyone loves hearing a good story. Maybe that's why audio storytelling has become such a big thing. So many people have picked up the microphone to share their voices, opinions, and experiences with a wider audience. But it's more than just personal expression. Podcasting connects people, and it can work as a bridge for groups that are underserved by traditional media. I'm Kelsey Arnett and you're listening to the Community Podcast Initiative. The goal of the CPI is to produce and promote podcasting as a way to amplify underrepresented voices through audio storytelling. This initiative is based out of Mount Royal University, which is located on Treaty 7 territory. The CPI is powered by Shaw. This episode, we're doing things a little differently. CPI co-director Meg Wilcox is also a senior producer on the Canadian Mountain podcast. The show focuses on knowledge mobilization, highlighting research and important discussions from Canada's Rocky Mountains and across the world. It's produced by a team of students in Mount Royal University's Journalism and Digital Media program. The podcast also has a unique approach to incorporating meaningful land acknowledgments into every episode, which they've refined and reworked over the years. This year, the show is wrapping its fifth and final season. For part one of its last episode, Meg and co-senior producer Kyle Napier, along with student producers Sherry Woods, Julie Patton, and Catalina Berguno, sat down to reflect on the show's evolution and commitment to decolonizing media practices. With that, here's host Sherry Woods with Decolonizing Media on the Canadian Mountain Podcast, Part 1.
1: Decolonizing media practices is a topic rarely discussed by professionals. But the Canadian Mountain Podcast team has made it our goal throughout this course of this series to learn how we can adapt our practices to better incorporate Indigenous people and amplify Indigenous voices. Although it is not a perfect system, and not necessarily the solution, it is a step in the right direction. Uki itamiks gunadani ni ni I'm Sherry Woods, and you are listening to the Canadian Mountain Podcast. This episode focuses on the Canadian Mountain Podcast team and the work we've done to decolonize our podcasts and how we will continue this work into the future. But before we get started, I'd like to take a moment to appreciate the land we work on and the people we work with. This podcast is produced across the Indigenous territories now referred to as Treaty 7. The Canadian Mountain Podcast acknowledges the land we work on as the home to the Nisga'a, Nakota, Sutina, and the Métis people. As journalists and media makers involved in Indigenous knowledge mobilization, the collective responsibility of our podcast is to strengthen our relationship with Indigenous peoples through storytelling and partnership. If you're a regular listener, you probably know that this is the fifth season of the Canadian Mountain Podcast, and you may also have learned throughout the years how this series has changed, with different hosts, topics, and formats. Some of this change happened naturally, and some of this change happened very deliberately, as the team looked at ways to decolonize its media-making practice. This included growing our production team, introducing land acknowledgements, taking part in training, and looking critically at our own practices. As we wrap up this fifth and final season of the podcast, I'm sitting down with some of our team members, Meg Wilcox, Kyle Napier, Julie Patton, and Catalina Preguno, and to discuss these changes and to reflect on what we've learned making this series. Welcome everyone, let's take a moment to briefly introduce our panel. Please tell us your names, a little bit about yourself, your connection to the land, and how long you've been a part of the podcast.
2: Uh, hello, my name is Kyle Napier. I'm from Fort Smith, Northwest Territories. Uh, these days I'm living around the mountains. Uh, these uh uh, today I'm in Mississauga, Skahigan, uh, otherwise referred to as Edmonton, and very much looking forward to hearing from the insights of these other uh, of, of the brilliant minds behind the uh, Canadian Mountain Podcast. So uh, excited to join this discussion today! Merci.
3: Hi, I'm Julie Patton. I joined the podcast just last year, but I'm from originally a little small town outside of Kindersley, Saskatchewan. I grew up on a farm. Um, we farm the land, and we also have a lot of cattle, so I've really enjoyed growing up in the prairies, but moving to Calgary has been amazing, and being close to the mountains, I, I really enjoy, and that's why I joined the Canadian
4: Mountain Podcast. Hello, my name is Catalina Berguno. Um, I'm from Chile, and I moved here in to Canada when I was seven or eight years old. I've been on the podcast, I think, for about two years. I'm one of the oldies, so... and. Been part of this podcast has been just a great opportunity to learn and be part of this team.
5: My name is Meg Wilcox. I'm one of the principal investigators, they would say, or coordinators of the Mountain Podcast and the team here. I've been working with the Mountain Podcast before it was a project here at MRU. Uh, so I want to say 2016, 2017. And uh, obviously here currently in Calgary and Mokinsis. Uh, but I'm actually from Kamloops. And... That's in British Columbia. And so there, Kamloops is actually on the unceded ancestral lands of the Sowepmik people. And one thing that you may know about Kamloops, is you might remember, in May 2021, uh, when it was revealed in news media that the Indian residential school is where they found 215 unmarked graves of children. And this is what really... You know, proved what had already been in conversation for years from indigenous groups that they were saying. But this I, I I think really changed the conversation around truth and reconciliation. And so I know for me this is something I carry as a sense of obligation. That was something that was found and happened where where I was born and raised. So it's something that, that I carry with me as I work on this podcast. <laughs>
1: Uh, welcome. Hello. My name is Sherry Woods. I just introduced myself in my Blackfoot language. Um, my traditional name is Agenskiaki, which was given to me by one of the elders in my community. Um, and I am from the Six Nation, which is a part of the Blackfoot Confederacy. Um, I reside on my own traditional territories. Um, that is my connection to the land and how And I've been on the podcast for about a year now, I want to say, and I'm excited to be here. So the first question that I want to ask is, uh, what is the importance of sharing space with both um, settler researchers and Indigenous knowledge holders? What, What do you think is the most important?
3: I mean, for me, connecting both of these knowledges, you really learn a lot. I mean, growing up. In school, typically you're learned. You're learning from the scientific perspective, and it's all you kind of get. And you touch on some indigenous knowledge, but it's kind of like a storybook kind of history. And you're not getting into the depth of it, and you're not treating it like science. I mean, it'll be brought up in your sciences, but not at the same level um, Western research is. So connecting these two knowledges together on the podcast has been really eye-opening for me and to be able to share it, I I really enjoy it and I'm really glad that I can be a part of this movement, bringing the knowledges together and uplifting Indigenous knowledge to the level that it should be held at.
2: In the consideration of sharing the space between Indigenous knowledge holders and, and settler researchers, often there's a fundamental disagreement between... How knowledge is constructed, how knowledge is validated, even even how mountain research is is conducted. And so, not just on the basis of inclusion, but recognizing the sovereignty of indigenous uh, knowledge holders and uh, the voices of of indigenous ecological experts from community, uh, it's critical that that uh, it's not just this you know settler colonial hegemonic paradigm that's featured, but rather, uh, the, rep- the, the representation of the p- pluralisms of, of understanding mountain research and, and even ecological research.
5: And I think what's so important is that bringing Indigenous knowledge to the table, making space for Indigenous knowledge to the table, I should say, extending that invitation transforms the conversation. What How this podcast would sound if we were only going to researchers or coordinating only from that more traditional academic point of view, knowing that we're all people in a university right now, um, would sound completely different. The way that we would ask the questions and converse about things would be totally different. And I can say that as someone who started on the podcast before the focus actually was with the Mountain Network. It was to include Indigenous knowledges, but not to center uh, center discussions around them. And so even seeing, you know, Kyle being able to come and join and co lead the team with me and how the, our processes changed, even how our meetings change and how our conversations are focused, I can say that, that they are entirely different and coming from a, a very different angle than they had been previously.
1: When I think about sharing spaces with uh, settler researchers, I kind of like as an Indigenous person, like I feel like I'm still struggling with it a little bit. Just because as someone who grew up not being able to share her knowledges in Western spaces or in like more predominantly white spaces, it has been hard for me to kind of open up and be able to feel like I coexist with settlers in a a way. Like I'm still struggling with it um, in a sense that um, I feel like sometimes there's – places where I am getting talked down on like I don't know anything in a way or um, my knowledge is less than because they're like oh well your knowledge is ancient like it doesn't matter today and sometimes I get a little bit riled up a little bit because I'm so protective of my uh, my culture and, um, and how people see it from the outside and um, so I'm still trying to learn how to work with um, other non-Indigenous people in, in non-Indigenous spaces and being able to see the importance in that um and like I I know that in, for me it's important I feel like if we are able to coexist together then we're able to move on right we're able to build things together be great together and um but as someone who's who's still young and still learning um It's something that I am working on, um, but I believe it's important.
4: Throughout my journey working here, I've heard a lot of other um, Indigenous people's experience, past experience working with the media, how their words have been misused and abused and just completely twisted in a way that was not intended. And so just being part of trying, like actively trying to be part of that space is not doing that. I think... um, you know, uh, I'm not saying it's a a whole solution. I'm just saying if uh, being part of the solution, not partaking in that behavior, I
1: think it's a step forward. Thank you, Catalina. Um, So we're going to move on to the next question. And I want to know more about the journalistic practices on making a podcast. Does somebody want to chime in on that?
4: Suddenly, all the knowledge of how to make a podcast has fled my brain, even though I've done it for years now. Okay. We first start uh, with our research and planning. We do a bunch of, yeah, it's pretty self-explanatory where we do a bunch of research and plan. And we just contact our sources um, ahead of time. And here in this podcast, we usually contact them very well in advance because you never know. And then we do our queue line where basically we do a bunch uh, a series of questions for our interviewees before we um, we go ahead and um, interview them. And then we do the official interviews. Um, we'll set up a time in this podcast in partil- particular. We usually do panel discussions. So we we'll schedule a time that works for all parties involved. And then we later go off um, and edit and vet our episodes. Yeah, we usually do a couple of rounds of vetting and editing before heading off to publishing.
1: Thank you. Um, and then to add on to that, um, so with the journalistic practices, um, how how do you think like our group as a podcast has moved away from those practices and able to be able to include Indigenous knowledges and practices?
3: I mean um, the first one is that's a big one is doing the land acknowledgement in the podcast that's not typically done in podcasting. Um, well, we're going to talk about the land acknowledgement more later but that is a, he- a difference for us. Then secondly when making the queue line we write it and then we send it to our guests beforehand and As Catalina mentioned, you typically don't do that. You want to have authentic conversations without them seeing the cue line before, but instead we send it to them and we let them edit it and maybe add in questions or take out questions to make the conversation more about them and let them represent their knowledge in the way they want to with the questions we ask. Then when it comes to editing, we actually send them a draft of the podcast and we let them come back with notes. Sometimes they'll have notes, sometimes they won't, but it gives them the power to control the narrative. So we give them that opportunity and then we publish it. So typically... When you record the podcast and you edit, you'd publish without your guests ever seeing how they sound, what it's going to look like, and giving our guests the opportunity to help control it, help represent their work the way they want to. That's a really big difference in the way that we've been trying to
1: decolonize our work. And I'm going to add a question onto that. So why would you as a team think that this would be important for Indigenous people?
5: Well, I think part of this comes into what Catalina says when we look at the history of how Indigenous people have been represented in the media, misrepresented in the media, right? And so part of this is uh, about a lack of trust and, and, quite frankly, a well-deserved lack of trust. So how do we look at building relationships, regaining that trust, and also, quite frankly, making sure that we're accurate, in what we're doing. right? Um, you You could have heard, I'm sure, from an old school journalist years ago who got something wrong saying, oh, well, that's how I saw it. Well, that doesn't mean it's accurate, right? And if we recognize that as media makers, we might not understand certain meanings behind word choices, or maybe cutting something out of a sentence and not understanding how it might change the meaning, not giving a chance for someone to be able to respond and make sure that that's going out into the world as it was intended. I personally see it as verification, right? So what's funny is some journalists might say, oh, well, now you're opening it up to bias because you know the subject can give input, to which I would say I would rather make sure that I'm accurate in what I'm doing and also that we are are building a relationship and trust, right? That that's more important than doing it all on my own, maybe making, making mistakes and saying, oh, well, at least it's not quote unquote biased because that ignores the fact that I have my own bias as a journalist. We all have our own bias uh, as storytellers and media makers, but it's also our job to work against it. So I think that's one of the the biggest elements as I see it.
2: Meg, just to build off what you just said, you're right. There is an inherent bias. As much as we as media makers and and podcast producers and content creators might want to avoid that bias, it's inherently an aspect of everything we do. Just the very nature of reporting on um, mountain research from a research er, from a research lens. Um, it assumes this uh, this one perspective of how well research is conducted, and so um, even just looking at at the changes that we've done from the podcast perspective and. As has been raised, the idea that uh, that a land acknowledgement and how we've done a land acknowledgement moves from just from just a continual and reflexive review of land acknowledgements, but further into our commitments. Like, so what? What are we doing about it? And that's a question that we, as a team, are continually asking ourselves, and a te- and a question that we encourage. Uh, other folks that are listening, or or that are interested in creative outputs of their own research, if if they're to conduct land acknowledgments, que- you know, a question that we would encourage you to ask yourselves is, well, what are you doing about it? And just on the basis of inclusion, um, in- inclusion in itself is not a, f- a form of decolonization, uh, and in fact. As a team, we've been moving past uh, this, these inclusive um, politics of recognition and more into the shared editorial capacity, control, and and creative liberty as exercised by indigenous members of of, of the team. So not just that we're included, um, or that our voices are included, but. But as Indigenous peoples, we're um, involved in the authorship and the production uh, and the post-production stages of uh, of sharing our words and perspectives as related to Mount Research.
1: Thank you, Kyle. Yeah, that's all important. And um, decolonizing media practices can be very intricate. (laughs) And um, just being able to um, do that as a group um, has been quite a journey. So for the next question, I wanted to know more about your like how a podcast team, how you are, how you share the narrative um, with the guests and um, what does it mean when you give them the episode draft? Did you want to kind of break that down? I would love to hear more.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think think Sid better explained this when we presented in Banff, but um, giving narrative control helps them sh- tell their story better. And also, we are kind of the guests in their conversation. The researchers and and Indigenous knowledge holders that we were working with, they've been working together for years, and they know the story very well. So we just kind of come into it. We give them a way to share it. And that's kind of our job. I mean, we call ourselves the hosts, but we're not really the hosts. We kind of are a guest in their work, and we're just sharing it on the podcast. So it's really important for them to be able to share it in the way that they
5: want to. And I think, you know, it doesn't mean that there isn't a, a role that we don't have, that the researchers and everyone just hops in at the table and they already know what's going on. Because I think that one thing that we can really offer as media makers is that we're good at understanding I think how to explain stories in broad strokes to broad audiences and I can say this as a researcher that most researchers are not particularly good at doing that right sometimes you just get that narrow focus right in on your topic you're highly specialized and you can't really see the forest for the trees so so we do come in with that viewpoint in helping broader audiences understand the story but exactly as Julie says you know none of us are experts in this and whether we're you know learning about like mountain goats or learning about aquatic ecosystems. I am very uninformed on those things until the interviews, usually. I would
4: say um, I've always known this was important, but I think it was highlighted. We usually don't get too much feedback from guests, but one time our one Indigenous source wanted me to tweak a little bit how she was introduced in the script, and it was a very minor detail, but it was very, very minor to me, if that makes sense. You know, um, but obviously um, she brought that up and I changed it. And so it's just kind of those moments where we don't place value in certain things, but that doesn't mean other people may not place value in that. And that kind of just helps you learn.
5: And I think, I mean, I'm going to throw this actually to Kyle because he has better examples, but we've had discussions every year as we've revised our land acknowledgement for the podcast that language does matter and implications for language does matter. And the perspective, if you're a settler, how you might see some words being used versus if you are Indigenous or from a certain region of the country or from a certain background can vary quite a bit. And so being thoughtful where we can on language and how to be specific in our language is really important. And Kyle, I don't know. If you want to add more on that, I mean, I've mostly been learning this from you over the last few years.
2: <laughs> oh, we've all been learning as a team, and that's <laughs> that's what it comes down to. I think is the continual and reflexive uh, learning, and, and the realization, you know, in, in the same way that we do review our land acknowledgements with each iteration, is that uh, is that we have more to learn, and the and this and the space on the horizon changes. One thing that Julie raised was the aspects of narrative control, and I agree. Well, this is an a, a while podcasting is a conduit to storytelling um, these are not our stories to share right we are in in our aspects the ones um, with uh, with the how do I say yeah the mic- microphone power you know and, uh, and and the power for amplification and broadcasting but ultimately um, it, it's not us helping to tell their story they 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 know how to tell their story um, but rather it's it's an avenue for For us to steward their stories to a broader audience uh, while at the same time evaluating our own practices and ethics as journalists to avoid uh, those extractive um, practices that that are typically associated with uh, media gathering processes in in, in and across Indigenous communities. As as Kat has just raised, too, um, we dive into the ethics of identity politics and and how guests want to represent um, or be represented uh, for the community because as indigenous guests Join they their audience or who they might be speaking to could be different than um, the uh, the perceived audience from how a researcher would be speaking. So, for instance, a researcher might be speaking you know broadly to a research community uh, could be even even globally. Whereas um, I've noticed with the indigenous guests who join, often the the audience um, and the perception of the audience is home community and. So with the point around what CADA has raised around um, one particular guest wanting to just really uh, correct it to ensure that uh, they are introduced properly uh, in accordance and, and reflective of their own community, that that that's important. And uh, and things that might be perceived as just minor details um, are, are indeed critical.
1: So for the next question, um, are... So the podcast team has developed a land acknowledgement, um, in the second year. Does anybody want to explain how did that come about
5: and what was your experience? I'll jump in on the land acknowledgement because I think I was actually the only one on the team at that point when it started. And, um, What's interesting around the land acknowledgement is we had a season and and had started doing some episodes before it came up. And it was Sarah Buffalo, who was one of our Indigenous members at the time uh, of the team, who I don't even think she suggested it in a meeting. I think she dropped it as a comment in a Google document. It was a script that was being worked on, and she just dropped this little note about, oh, what about a land acknowledgement? And as soon as I saw it, I went doy like why has this not even been talked about yet like as, as a team why we haven't and I, I will point out that sarah was the only indigenous team member at that point and so i i reached out to her about it but within context of the team and and she ended up telling me after that she'd kind of dropped it there on purpose that she didn't feel confident bringing it up in a meeting that she thought it was important to consider but wasn't really she didn't know the team that well. She was pretty new and she wasn't sure how to do it. And so um, we we sort of picked it up and I, I sort of saw that as a you've you've dropped the hint. we need to figure it out now. So that was where uh, coordinating with three of the other team members, so uh, Gabrielle, Eric, and Ethan, um, we spoke a bit about, you know, well, do you, do you agree with this? How might we want to approach it? And uh, I ended up bringing in two two individuals. This was all remote at the time for COVID. And so I brought in Patty Derbyshire, who is now a retired prof from MRU, who does a lot of work in reconciliation. She's a settler. And Spirit River Striped Wolf, who until recently was the MRU student president. And also he did a lot of research work with that, with Patty. And they came to talk to us about their experience with land acknowledgements, how they saw them working, and also how how it might work in podcasting, because the challenge we have too is that uh, we don't hear a lot of land acknowledgements in podcasts, and we don't like, in terms of audio formatting, it doesn't happen that way. So that's kind of how, how it all started, but it's grown a lot from there. And, and so from there, we developed our first land acknowledgement, trying to find a way to deal with it in audio format. Because the challenge is, uh, you don't want it to be too long, right? Uh, in audio, we do tend to condense things. We didn't want it to be too formal, Because that also doesn't really work in podcasting. But also, what exactly is land in context of a podcast? I mean, currently, we have four members that are all sitting here in a room in person, you know, at Mount Royal University. And then we have Kyle, who's who's up in Edmonton, but we don't know who's listening to this, where they're based, where they're from. Often interviewing our guests, they could be as far away as the Northwest Territories or international, right? And so how could we figure out what land meant? So we worked it out in a few ways to create a few different sections and actually... Sherry, how you started our podcast today by asking us our names a bit about ourselves and where we're from became part of our commitment through deciding to have a land acknowledgement is that we should be asking our guests about where they're from and how they connect to the land. And that gives us a way to to bring that in, aside from a statement, which we do have, you know, a statement at the opening of the, the podcast, and we have one at the end. So instead of having one land acknowledgement, we kind of have three that all work in different ways. And currently, you know, we have the one at the beginning that speaks to the people. People of, of this region right um, and we name them by, by name uh, we're not using anglicized names then we talk to our guests and we ask them to explain their connection to the land and then at the end we have a bit more of a statement that we, we might consider a bit more formal but you know situating our production team that you know we're in treaty 7 territory as it as it is called within a you know a, a colonial governance standpoint but also where we provide our commitment to working respectfully and continuing to learn with indigenous peoples and it helps us take all those elements that make an effective land acknowledgment but doesn't make it too long or too formal or feel like we're at the beginning of of a meeting and someone's just reading out a speech for the nature of it. Um, and one of the other elements that we do is, is revise our, our uh, land acknowledgement. If you listen between seasons two, or I guess three, four, and five, uh, they will all sound different. And it's because we met as a team and we made changes. Thank
1: you, Meg. Um, just to go off of the land acknowledgments, I remember as a group, we were on Google Meets and we were working on the land acknowledgement for our team. And I actually thoroughly enjoyed uh, working with you guys because um, I had to do land acknowledgements for two other places and I won't mention it, <laughs> who they were. But um, And uh, I felt like it was thrown to the indigenous people that worked there and we were kind of like having to come up with the land acknowledgement instead of ha- working as like a, a group with the other employees, especially people who are like high up in management and I remember one of my previous, my, my, my boss, we were kind of sitting there looking at the company's land acknowledgement and we were, she was so disappointed because she was saying like, um, they spelt some of the tribe names wrong. Like they didn't even bother to fact check the land acknowledgement and sh- and then I looked at it and I was like oh my god <laughs> it's spelled wrong and so she was like so disappointed and she just felt like okay well I'm just gonna fix it and I felt like that wasn't her job I told her I was like you know that's not your job I was like they need to kind of sit there and go through it and actually it needs to feel per- like personal it needs to not feel like we're just going to you know check this off a box. We're going to do this. We're going to do that and get it over with. And I kind of experienced that with like two other places. And I just felt really, it was really daunting to me. And I felt really kind of sad about it because I felt like now that land acknowledgements are becoming such a, not a huge thing, but they're coming a more, more known thing in other places that it feels like it's forced because they have to say it because they feel like, okay, well, if we're going to be respectful. We're going to have to do this. Right. And I some places like I know it's genuine other places. I know it's not. But um, so, yeah, that's with my experience doing the land of I was thankful that I didn't really have much like you guys allow me input, but I felt like you as a group were able to kind of come up with it yourself, kind of add in your input. And I just didn't feel like I was on, you know, sitting there like looking at it and having to come up with it by myself And I appreciated that. Um, And just to go off for the next question. um, So when we're talking about land acknowledgements and how they shouldn't be a box to check like I spoke about previously, how as a team did you make it um, work to be meaningful? I think you pretty much
4: touched on it um, in the sense that we worked on it together. And I think that really helped honestly, if someone had told me here, make a land acknowledgement all alone, I would have been very lost. (laughs) And being, you know, uh, guided through and working all this together. Also, when we revised the land acknowledgement, and kind of talking about why like certain language, diction matters, kind of helped me. uh, It was very insightful to me. And like, learning how to do a land acknowledgement and I think going through that learning process all together as a team very much helped be in that comfort zone.
3: Yeah um, I mean for me when we were revising it that was kind of one of the first things I had done on the podcast and so I really didn't know much and I didn't have much input to have but being there and knowing why we selected those words why we wrote the sentences that way, having that insight as to why we wrote it like that, I was able to feel more genuine in saying the land acknowledgement and that I was a part of it because no matter how genuine you are with saying a land acknowledgement, if it's just a script you pulled off the internet, it's not going to be personal to you. And being able to be a part of the conversation and help build it together, it really made it more meaningful to be able to say.
5: Well, and thinking back to the first conversation around a land acknowledgement, uh, I think it was even more meaningful for the students and myself to think about it because we were doing it online uh, in the fall of 2020 in COVID. And, you know, this was a time where it felt like I try to remember and all I see are Zoom screens, right? But the one time I would normally be spending time outside or connecting with the land was when you get outside because it's one of the few places you could meet with people, right? Especially when we were all more under lockdown. And I know that chatting with the other students about you know, how are we engaging with the land? Where are we? And I think many of us during COVID had a newfound appreciation for where we were and being able to spend that time outside and and what it meant to whether we were able to connect with our community or not through those outdoor spaces. And so it it sort of evolved at that time. And and I think it provided uh, some comfort for some of the students, especially those of us that were able to get out to the mountains. You know, we think about how popular it became to go out there at that time, but uh, to be able to think more meaningfully about how we engaged with the land.
2: Yeah, we've had two land acknowledgement revision processes uh, since since I joined. And in, in fact, right after I joined, um, that was one of the things that I, I I said as a team that we would need to address pertinently before the release of the next episode, and I think it was before a launch of a new mm-hmm. season. Um, you know, m- most land acknowledgments these days, you could. You could ask AI to write a land acknowledgement, and it would be uh, quite similar to the land acknowledgements that you see um, written across various universities and institutions, and that speaks to how impersonal these land acknowledgements often are. And so we as a team made the priority to embed commitment within our land acknowledgement. And through this commitment, and again, this reflexive revisiting of this land acknowledgement, it forces us to look at our practices, um, and then we become beholden to the commitment and processes within the land acknowledgement, not only, right, for the personal aspects that are tied to um, uh, our commitments, our relationship to the mountains, our relationship to the land, um, but, um, but what are we again? What are we doing about it? And uh, and I feel kind of like, you know, looking to the the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's call to action, uh, eighty six, uh, call to action eighty six specifically looks to journalism programs, and. Um, and, and their role in requiring education for all students on the histories of of Indigenous peoples, um, and then they talk about residential schools and UNDRIP and treaties and, and Indigenous law and Crown relations. But but critically, is that um, history is not just a thing of the past. It it is um, it is current. It is ongoing, and it is it is an, it is through to the future. And that is is an aspect I feel um, that we've embraced Im- Im- Embedded and embodied in our land acknowledgement process, and also in our process of, of uh, working with Indigenous guests, is is recognizing uh, the past, present, and futures of of the Indigenous peoples that we we um, have wel- welcomed to join in as guest speakers on on the Canadian On podcast. So, uh, bringing it back to the meaningful uh, impacts and processes of of how we're going about a land acknowledgement, um, I, I do want to underscore that it is about, about commitment and, uh, and even us committing to, to revisiting what that means amongst our own team.
1: Thank you, Kyle. Um, and just to add on to that a little bit, um, so how I understood land acknowledgments as an indigenous person was, um, my Gaxi, my grandpa told me, he's like the way he's, uh, I'm trying to like say it where it makes, makes sense, but he said in my language, um, he said the way that non-Indigenous do land acknowledgements. He's like, it's a, it, it's good, but it's a little bit funny. He said, and he's like, but th- it's a good thing that they're doing it because even back then, so historical-wise, Indigenous people, when they would move around on the territories of the land, they know they knew whose land they, or whose territories they were on, and they would acknowledge that. Um, especially like say my community my tribes they went to like Cree territory they would acknowledge that they would know that that was their territory and there would be some kind of agreement like okay you know here and there so looking back at it and looking now that's kind of what how I think about it is like we're honoring the the traditional territories of other Indigenous groups and knowing that they've been the guardians and the caretakers of those lands. And um, so my grandpa, he always stressed, you know, that's important. And I'm glad that people are seeing that because we've did that for a millennial. (laughs) Join us in part two to hear the rest of our conversation as we discuss the limitations and challenges of decolonizing media as well as what the future of decolonized media may look like. In part one of our discussion on decolonizing media, we discuss how the Canadian Mountain podcast team has adapted their practice from traditional journalism. These changes included sharing the question line with guests prior to the interview so that the guests are allowed narrative control in the storytelling process. Another change is sharing an episode draft with the guests so that they have the opportunity to provide feedback before the episode goes live. Lastly, the Canadian Mountain Podcast utilizes a land acknowledgement, a practice not yet common in podcasting. Additionally, the team revisits and revises the land acknowledgement each year adapting it to a new knowledge and finding ways to make it more meaningful to the team. That is it for this edition of the Canadian Mountain Podcast in partnership with the Community Podcast Initiative at Mount Royal University. Thanks for listening. I'm Sherry Woods and thanks to producer Julie Patton and thank you to Kyle Napier and Meg Wilcox for your guidance. The Canadian Mountain Podcast is produced from the Treaty 7 territories with the goal of bringing together Indigenous knowledges with settler research and sciences throughout this shared platform. We are committed to collaborating with Indigenous peoples in respect of the contributions of Indigenous voices and knowledge holders. We are actively listening and learning to decolonize our production practices throughout this series and encourage other media professionals and organizations to decolonize their practices as well. Be sure to join us again for more stories surrounding mountain places, whether that be in your own backyard or from around the country. Share and subscribe to get the latest episodes and be sure to tell your mountain-loving friends and colleagues. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you can learn more about the Canadian Mountain Network at CanadianMountainNetwork.ca.